Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey there, everybody from KQED Public Radio. It's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, last year, Democrat Matt Haney left the San Francisco Board of Supervisors after winning a special election to fill a vacant San Francisco Assembly seat. He's going to join us today to talk about his transition from San Francisco to Sacramento politics. And he says the politics are a lot less toxic at the state capitol than they are in San Francisco City Hall. Haney is one of just three renters in the entire state legislature, so he created a Renters Caucus to support more housing construction and help advocate for renters. He's also pushing an amendment to create a right to housing in California, among other things. And Marisa will talk with him about all that and much more. That is but right. First of all, welcome back to you. Thank you got you. a little escape. I, I did. I won't say details, and while but it took I was a while. Gone. A bank collapse. A bank collapse, <laughs> and a lot is happening this week. Yeah, the Silicon Valley Bank went belly up on Friday. Federal regulators seized it, and it caused a lot of ripples uh, through the economy and internationally that are continuing, actually, in the stock market. This was a state-chartered bank. Uh, however, um, this was largely federally regulated, but there are some questions as well uh, about what the state might have done, could have done, should do going forward. Right. And we should say, I mean, this is a sort of considered a medium-sized bank, but its big kind of business was giving a lot of capital to startups. There was a lot of sort of venture capitalists involved in it. And so I think it's been kind of fascinating, you know, on a local level to watch. But also uh, there's a lot of concern for the folks whose payrolls were coming through that, not the VCs. Nobody's that sad about the VCs. But I think it's the question of like, are people going to get their money? Um, And I know, Scott, you've done some reporting this week on what the state could do. Is there any, I don't know, hope? I I know this is mostly federal regulatory kind of structure, but are are we thinking about hearings? What are lawmakers saying? Yeah, for sure. So I talked to the chairs of both the Assembly and the Senate banking committees, and they both agree there do need to be hearings. There should be hearings. And you're right. It was mostly the federal government that regulated the bank. Um, However, you know, there is this state agency that was created a couple years ago, the Financial Protection and Innovation Agency, which really was meant to fill in the gaps left when Trump and and Congress kind of weakened some federal protection for consumers. But there's there are questions about like is there should there have been a role more of a role for the state agency which I have to say was not very transparent they really did not talk to me this week after mm-hmm. repeated calls but they'll be looking at all that and they're going to wait for this May first report to come out from the federal government which of course will be doing a deep dive into what happened we know that it was a liquidity crisis there was a run on the bank um, but the question will be what could the state 
or should the state do going forward to maybe help raise the red flags when things like this are happening, even if they don't have sole or even primary jurisdiction? Right. And we'll also just be watching in general kind of the fallout from this because, you know, uh, this is an FDIC insured bank. So, you know, the, the president has said this won't be a taxpayer bailout. But I think now there's pressure on the Fed. Like, do they continue to raise interest, you know, raise interest rates? How does that impact the broader economy? Things that are kind of above my pay grade as a yeah. politics reporter, quite frankly, but not above our pay grade, is watching the governor. He's on a tour this week instead of giving his uh, state of the state speech to the, or he's kicking it off. I kicking guess. it off. And we should say it is not a listening tour. It is a talking tour, <laughs> <laughs> as is often the case with Gavin Newsom. Um, and he kicked it off this morning in Sacramento talking about providing more housing, especially for uh, to help with uh, clearing up encampments, which we know has been a big issue. Um, they're talking about maybe 1,200 or so new smaller homes that could be temporary housing. Uh, we'll have more reporting on that, I'm sure, in the days to come. And he'll be you know, doing this tour, going up and down the state, we expect to hear more about other key issues, criminal justice, um, perhaps more about the Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> yeah. And we should also like he was also this week in Pajaro, you know, where there was that terrible flood when the levee right. broke. Um, so, there, it, it, yeah, it has been quite a week for the state. Not a good one, particularly. But uh, Newsom is going to go around and talk about some of his initiatives, uh, you know, for for this coming year, even though the state has eh, not as much money as it had last year. Right. And this is sort of dispensing with the traditional speech in front of the legislature where he kind of lays out the state of California, um, a, a different approach and one that maybe we're not too surprised about given that Newsom is least comfortable speaking from kind of a written speech. He's got dyslexia. I think he is more comfortable in these smaller situations where he can kind of riff off the cuff, which often goes on for a very long time. Yes, it does. Uh, and we should also say he had COVID, you know, oh, while right. we were gone. <laughs> he, was, uh, he recovered from that. He did do a couple of press briefings. Um, no rest for the weary. From yes. <laughs> from uh, his house. Uh, but yeah, he's recovered and back uh, and uh, and up and kicking. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by San Francisco Assemblyman Matt Haney. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're happy to have with us San Francisco's newest representative in Sacramento, Matt Haney, served on the San Francisco School Board and the Board of Supervisors, where he represented the Tenderloin, which has more than a share of unhoused residents, open drug dealing, fentanyl overdose deaths. Last year, he easily won a special election to fill David Chu's assembly seat, and then he won a full two-year term in November. Matt Haney, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. So you made kind of a splash uh, after you got up to Sacramento uh, in a conversation I think you had with the San Francisco Chronicle. You talked about the contrast between the politics and the political climate in Sacramento versus San Francisco City Hall. And you, you described San Francisco politics as, and I'm quoting here, frozen in animosity. And I'm wondering, um, what prompted you to say that, and how is it different in Sacramento? And has that changed it over uh, since you've been there a little longer? <laughs> and and I should say I was there in Sacramento saying this during one of the most historic uh, speaker fights and conflicts, right. leadership right. battles, yes. uh, which has now been and it was still more civilized. Than still more, yes. Yeah, so that's telling you a lot. This was not a calm time in in Sacramento when I said this. You know, San Francisco, I think, is notorious for this type of politics where whether you call it a, a knife fight in a phone booth or crabs in a barrel, people are fighting over very uh, small differences. They're really focused more on tearing each other down. And the result of that is that we're not talking to each other and listening to each other in a way that can deliver real solutions. And I think the people of San Francisco are, are experiencing that now. They're incredibly frustrated, so much so that they're recalling people uh, in a way that they've never in, in, in our history. And I think that is because our politics here in San Francisco are broken. Uh, it's not that San, Francisco, San Francisco's politics are broken and Sacramento's are perfect. They're, they're definitely right. not. But people do talk to each other. We come from a very diverse set of districts. People are rural, suburban, uh, yeah, urban, Republicans. Uh, Republicans. And so people have to, uh, if they want to be successful for the things they care about in their districts, they have to accept that that means other people can be successful too. I mean, I'm curious, after leaving City Hall, which... I've covered and I had the same impression when I first went to Sacramento over 10 years ago. And that was an even sort of more uh, tough time up there with Schwarzenegger and two thirds requirement for a budget. You know, like things were not always happy. But it struck me that, yeah, people made things very personal in Sacramento, probably because their policies are not that far apart. Ultimately, they're all in San Francisco Democrats. Yeah. I'm wondering, though, now that you've had some time, like, do you reflect on anything that you feel like, oh, I contributed to that? And have you brought a different approach yourself to Sacramento? Absolutely. Uh, You know, the issue of uh, drug addiction and drug dealing in our city is one that is is highly fraught uh, and can lead to a lot of name calling and and harsh uh, divisions. And I think it's gotten in the way of solutions that should be common sense. You know, if there's open air drug dealing, that's a problem. It's a public safety issue and it should be confronted. If there's people who are addicted, they need help, they need mm-hmm. treatment. And so I've really focused since I've been in Sacramento and trying to find common ground 
with folks around that issue. Republicans actually care about the issue of fentanyl, uh, maybe even more than than Democrats do. And they're introducing bills. And I've tried to seek them out and say, let's find common ground. For example, on the issue of access to Narcan or naloxone. I'm a joint author with a Republican, Joe Patterson, on uh, two Narcan access bills. And now I'm going to them and also to other moderate Democrats who maybe were against safe injection sites and saying, well, can we find common ground on treatment? So these these are things that this is what we have to do to get things done. And I, unfortunately, even when I was in San Francisco, that was hard for me to do. And I'm trying to, I, I agree, I, I bear some responsibility for it. We all do. And so, you know, I, I, I hope that in San Francisco, even those breakthroughs can be possible. Absolutely. We like to talk about people's backgrounds on this show, <laughs> their bios, where they came from. And so you were born and raised in the Bay Area. Um, and... Uh, you went to school, I think, in Albany, north of yes, Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, what was what was your family like? Uh, we, you know, it's we we've you know read a little bit about your mom, but not much about your dad. Tell tell us about your family. Sure. Uh, well, I'm very much a Bay Area kid. Uh, my grandparents, my grandpa just turned 95, uh, and uh, my grandma and grandpa still live here in San Francisco. Uh, my grandpa was very involved with the civil rights movement. He was a close confidant of Martin Luther King's. Uh, he served in uh, the Navy during World War II. I, my mom's side of the family is Jewish. And I was born in uh, Santa Cruz, actually. Uh, my parents split when I was very young, and we went with my mom, who at the time was a student at Berkeley. So I grew up in student family housing at UC Berkeley and ended up ultimately going to Berkeley myself. Uh, so spent a lot of time around the UC system. I grew up in a very diverse community. I had friends uh, of all different backgrounds, uh, all different uh, uh, experiences in terms of where they came from and who they were. And I learned a lot from that. Uh, and my dad and I continued to have a relationship, even though my, my parents were apart. My dad uh, is a psychologist and actually uh, his he was involved with among the most famous uh, uh, psychology experiments, the Stanford Prison Experiment. My oh. dad was the, the the graduate student who shut that project down, uh, and uh, and he has continued to work on the criminal justice reform and in prisons for his career. So I come from a family of people who have uh, felt a responsibility to make our state better, our communities better, and to fight for fairness and justice. And so. When I grew up, uh, I didn't have much of a choice and, and also you know, had my own experiences with friends of mine who were incarcerated or kicked out of school, uh, people that I was close to that I wanted to make sure had opportunities. And so I went to Berkeley undergrad, I went to Stanford Law School, and I've had my whole career here in the Bay Area uh, in California trying to do that. Yeah, I know you worked or interned in the office of then state senator Joe Samidian, who's kind of a <laughs> South Bay legend. So, and, and you kind of took the words out of my mouth. I mean, it sounds like public service was kind of a, an expectation in some ways in your family. Um, what was that first experience like in a legislative office? And did it, you know, did it spark this uh, this career, or was <laughs> was it sort of like you know, when you're young, it can be yeah. either way? Yeah. Well, I, I went to Sacramento right out of college, and like many folks in California, I didn't know a lot about the things that happened in uh, state politics. You know, a lot of the focus that we have is on what's happening federally or in San Francisco, what's happening locally. And when you get up to Sacramento, you realize that so many of the things that directly impact our lives, uh, whether it's K-12, higher education, uh, prisons, healthcare, they're being decided in Sacramento. Yet Sacramento is 
probably the lowest profile right. of a little opaque uh, yeah. for a lot of folks. So, sure. so that was definitely eye opening for me. Uh, I ended up staffing uh, for Joe Simidian, uh what was at the time a very controversial bill, which was a bill which uh, prohibits people from talking on their handheld cell phone while driving. And this was a bill oh, I remember that. he had yeah. given to to his 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 junior staffers seven years in a row. And the year that I staffed it, it passed into law. And it all started with Arnold Schwarzenegger unknowingly giving an interview saying he would never let his daughter talk while driving. <laughs> and so that sort of set off a chain of events that got the bill passed. Schwarzenegger was the gift that kept on giving but, uh, in some ways, right? In some that, ways, that, some that ways opened, not so much. opened my eyes to what was possible at the state level and how, uh, especially for, for Joe Simidian, he was an example of that. Uh, if you worked hard and you knew your stuff and you knew your bills and you organized and built relationships that you could create transformational policy. And so that's what I'm uh, lucky to be doing now. (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned that you went to Stanford Law and uh, you were also um, afterwards working with Van Jones, who's now on CNN. Um, He was a community justice organizer at the time. And he created something called the Dream Corps. And something, part of that was called Cut 50, um, which brings you right back to criminal justice reform. Uh, Tell us how you got involved in that and, and what did you accomplish? So uh, Van Jones, uh, Jessica Jackson, and I launched something called Cut 50, which at the time was a very radical idea. We thought that criminal justice reform should be elevated within policymaking at ev- every level, that we had a broken criminal justice system that was locking up a lot of people and getting little results for public safety. Uh, and we believed that we could work with anyone on that issue, that this was an opportunity for bipartisanship, uh, for Republicans and Democrats to come together. Actually, Van realized that that when he was on Crossfire <laughs> and he would fight with Newt Gingrich every day, but then they had this one issue that they agreed on, which is criminal justice reform. I think he's and, changed his mind on that, by yes, the way. Yes, I think, I, I think a have. lot has yeah. changed <laughs> since then. But but what what some some of some a lot of positive has come out of that, including this issue, has become a much more high profile uh, policy for a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, le- legislators, and it's continued to be an issue where I think there's opportunity for people coming together. Yeah. I mean, Van Jones famously worked with former President Trump on the First Step Act, which was the biggest kind of federal reform that we'd seen. Uh, Cut fifty was started in the wake of realignment, AB 109, Prop 47, some of the biggest reforms we've seen in California in decades. I wonder if you see like a backlash now, because it seems like Trump went from signing first step to, you know, all doom and gloom and urban decay and and all of this. And and, and like what you make of that, like, did we did a window close or is this just the normal kind of push and pull of controversial politics and policy? You know, I think that I, I always try to think about just what regular people that I represent think about this. And I think most people know at an intuitive level that just locking people up for longer and longer amounts of time is a waste of money and doesn't keep them safe. Uh, Where I think we need to do a lot more work and where people are demanding a lot more and they should is public safety policies that actually work. Fine, don't lock people up, but can you actually get them some treatment that means they don't come back and continue to commit crimes? So I, I, I do think that there is a backlash to what people feel like has been uh, taking away something that they knew they d- didn't work, but not replacing it with something that's actually keeping people safe. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, for the reform movement, that's where our focus has to be now. Yes, don't 20, 30, 40 year sentences for drug crimes. That's not working. We should never go back to that. But 
don't just cycle people in and out of jail and 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 get them to, them to a point where they continue to commit crimes. That's that's not right either. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking with Matt Haney. He represents San Francisco in the state assembly. Um, we mentioned at the top that you spent a few years on the San Francisco school board, which has been embroiled in some problems uh, since you left. After I left. After you left. (laughs) But some of those issues percolated around while you were there, uh, including things like should schools be renamed and, you know, should we paper over or remove a mural? What do you feel your legacy was on the board? What did you get done there that you're proud of? When I came into the Board of Education, there were a couple of things I really wanted to focus on. One is that I think schools need to be places where all young people can walk in and feel seen, uh, feel valued, uh, have their social and emotional well-being uh, acknowledged, and and to not be punitive, harsh places. And I think we made a lot of progress on that. I I authored something called the Safe and Supportive Schools Policy, which created a framework where we can have positive behavioral interventions and restorative justice and all these things that I think create much more supportive environments for all of our children, uh, lowered suspensions and did a lot of positive things there. There's more work that needs to be done there for sure, but that was a big focus of mine. Uh, The other thing is that we have to make sure our schools are places where we teach kids things that they need in the world. And so I've focused on bringing computer science education and design thinking and innovative uh, career curriculum. Uh, we did K through 12 uh, computer science uh, education in, in SFUSD. We're the first district to do that, and I authored that. So I'm proud of both some of the things I did to just make our school safer and, 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 and more compassionate places. All of our kids need that and also to bring them more into the 21st century. Yeah. You know, you left the board in 2019, and obviously 2020 when the pandemic happened is when a lot of these other issues uh, kind of percolated up. But but at the core of a lot of it uh, was the existing issues that were there before you were there, while you were there, the achievement gap. We have the worst achievement gap for black students in the state. It's not way better for Latinos. I just wonder, like, what your argument would be to people who feel like the city has focused too much on sort of, you know, issues that are symbolic, like a mural or a renaming versus actually closing that gap. Like, wouldn't that be the most equitable thing is to make sure all kids have an equal education? That's absolutely where the focus should be. And I think that that was the message from the the recall, which passed overwhelmingly. Uh, And I very much hope that that's where the school board is and the superintendent, new superintendent are. Uh, San Francisco should have uh, among the best public schools in the state or the country. We have the support for it. We have the resources. And uh, yet we're still falling behind. One of the things I'll say, another thing that I focused on was the issue of student assignment, because our schools are also uh, incredibly segregated. And it's hard to close an achievement gap when you have the level of segregation. So uh, I think there are ways to do student assignment that addresses some of the problems with it and also helps to close the achievement gap. So you were on the Board of Supervisors after the school board. You represented District 6, which includes the Tenderloin and a lot of south of market um, that been redrawn a bit since you left. But um, the Tenderloin obviously has a lot of problems that you're well aware of. A lot of unhoused people, a big fentanyl crisis, overdoses, open air drug Street markets. Behavior, yeah. But there's also a lot of families there, a lot of kids there. Um, I'm wondering if you think that the, the focus on the Tenderloin, is, is it the right mix of priorities right now? And has it changed? Well, so I, I've lived in the Tenderloin for uh, nearly t- 10 years. 
uh, and I'll continue to live there because of the incredible community that's there. The It's one of the most diverse places you can imagine. Uh, people who live there actually do get along remarkably well and work together, whether or not they speak the same language or come from the same place. And there's an incredible amount to be proud of there, of the way that that community welcomes people who have been discarded elsewhere and helps to lift them up. Uh, and there's also a lot of work that needs to be done clearly. And for those, that community, they deserve safety. They don't deserve to have drug dealers on every corner or to be scared to walk down the street or to step on you know, poop and needles every time they walk outside. They deserve to have a, a safe and healthy community. So I, I think that needs to be the focus. I'll also say that a lot of what we see in the Tenderloin uh, is the result of failures that didn't start there. And it's a place where people come because they've been discarded from other places, often places outside of uh, San Francisco, and often because of who they are. It's places that people come uh, because they have experienced homophobia or transphobia, and they end up in the Tenderloin, and they need people to help lift them up, and we will do our best in, in, in doing that, but we also need other places to do their part. The Tenderloin cannot solve drug addiction and poverty and safety and all the things just in that neighborhood. We need every city and county to do their part in order for the Tenderloin to be a place where we can see the type of humanity uh, and, and acknowledgement and value of humanity that we all uh, really uh, want to see in our, in, our, in our state and in our city. I mean, one of the problems in addition to sort of the public health and, and public safety things you laid out is housing, right? I mean, we do not have enough housing in the city or the state. And I know this is an issue that you've really delved into. Your critics would say you flip-flopped on the issue, uh, become much more pro-housing than when you first ran for the Board of Supervisors. And it was a big part of your campaign for assembly. It's been a big part of your initial legislative packages. What do you see? Do you see a generational shift there? Like to me, housing is one of the biggest changes in sort of politics that has happened in recent years. And I just wonder, like what your conversations are around that and how you explain your changing and evolution on it. Well, to, to my peers, uh, the issue around housing is, is a no brainer. You know, in, in San Francisco, it's often painted as a progressive, moderate kind of conflict. Uh, that dynamic is different in Sacramento, where progressives are much more identified as pro-housing. Here, there's more of a concern about overdevelopment among progressives. But among my peers, the, the issue of housing, however you call yourself ideolo ideologically, uh, everyone understands we need a lot more housing. People can't find housing that allows them to move out of their parents' home. Uh, if they're having kids, they're starting to think about a bigger place and how they can afford that. So this issue of building more housing at all levels uh, is one that I think, to me, is intuitive. And, uh, and, and there's, a, there's definitely a generational shift around it. I think my, my uh, shift around it, when I ran uh, for supervisor, I thought that I could focus on solving a lot of these problems just in my district. And I, I said, you know, I'm not going to focus on the rest of the state or the city. I want to see more housing just built, be built in District 6 and more affordable housing and housing of all types. And that was my focus. And I think in line with how I just described the situation in the Tenderloin, that's not going to be enough. Uh, we can't have cities that are refusing to build housing at all. And it is going to have to be funding, but it's also going to have to be zoning and all of these barriers and, and 
uh, and, and obstacles that get in the way of building housing to begin with. Well, and of course, San Francisco has, I think, the longest time period for approving housing, uh, and the state is now investigating. And, and the state in general, and the Newsom administration, has got much more aggressive. They sued Huntington Beach uh, just the other day. Um, how confident are you that you know, that kind of approach with putting some teeth into those requirements to build more housing is going to make a difference, especially when you still have CEQA and all the other things that can slow. You know, I, the, other, the other thing that I saw from serving on the Board of Supervisors is I saw a lot of talk and a, a not a lot of action on building housing. And I looked around again and again during my time there, and my district was the, the only district that was really building housing. And there was always an excuse. There was always a roadblock. There was always a barrier that got in the way of it. And I think in some ways, that's a microcosm of, of our own state. Uh, many places uh, have talked a game about it, but haven't actually done it. And so we need to get to the doing part, and we need to get to the doing part fast. And that's going to take the governor, that's going to take the legislature, that's going to take the attorney general, actually not only having housing laws in place, but enforcing them. And even coming down and saying, you can't do business as usual because we are millions of units short. And uh, and and people can't afford to live here. I, I guess I wonder, like, how hopeful you are, because you mentioned like you live in the Tenderloin. You see the challenges every day in that neighborhood with our downtown quarter. Um, you know, it, Scott mentioned I had just been traveling. I was in Europe. It was amazing how little sort of street problems there are in other cities. And I just yeah, I just wonder, like having worked on this for a while, like, are you hopeful? Do you feel like you guys can actually make progress on what seems like pretty intractable problems around the entire state right now? Well, as I said, I'm I'm from here. I'm I'm not going anywhere. And I, I'm not going anywhere because I, I believe in this place and its people and uh, and where we're going. And we definitely have a lot of problems and challenges. And those are very, very deeply embedded. Uh, but I do see change. You see the, what's happened in the last few years on the shift in housing policy and how dramatically we have moved to a place where we can't accept the status quo of blocking housing across the state. And you're seeing just a, a ton of policy. And it's going to take some years for that to, to bear fruit. But I am hopeful about where we're going. I'm hopeful about our ability to get things done in the legislature. And, and even I'm hopeful for, for San Francisco as well. And, uh, and I think we have to be, and our history uh, tells us that there's a reason to be. Well, we both live here, so we hope so. <laughs> yeah, and I would say, I live in the Mission. I would say there's a lot of housing built here as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So just, uh, just absolutely. Just absolutely. Right on that. All right, Matt Haney, thank you so much for coming in, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Chris Beal. Special thanks, Chris. And I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm Scott Schaefer. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to the Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm 
Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 